0: So I'm back with Matt McGregor for another week of rounding up the acquisition headlines. And the budget actually just dropped a little bit more than a week ago. So we'll go through some of the major ads and subtractions, what's going on with the programs, and then we'll get into some of the headlines. So the first and the biggest one here, of course, as always, is the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. It has a total quantity decrease from 96 last year to 85 this year, just slightly decrease on the, Appropriations from 12.8 billion to 12 billion. The losers there were really the Air Force toll and the Navy uh, carrier variants. They both lost out from 60 to 48 for the for the Air Force 26 to 20, and then the Stovall for the JSF actually got a bump up from 10 to 17 from last year. But overall, that 35 has decreased. C2D2 has actually increased a little bit to 480 million. The, the big loser here actually seems to be the F-18 Hornet, of course. The Navy pretty much zeroed that out from uh, 24 procurements last year to zero, but there's still 1.4 billion in there, mostly for modifications and their infrared search and track. The F-15 Eagle, of course, we have a slight increase there from 18 to 30 procurements for the F-15EX. The A-10 Thunderbolt Still rolling along a little bit more than $100 million. Of course, we're not built, buying any, but we are divesting from Sun. The next generation air dominance, NGAD, is actually, they're looking for quite a little bit of an increase. They requested $1 billion last year, only got $900 million. This year, they're looking for $1.5 billion, So that's the highest um, that they've ever requested for NGAD. And we'll see what's coming out of that. Did you have any kind of comments there on, on the fighter aircraft systems?
1: Well, it looks like, uh, I think for the the one comment on the guess on the Navy one, it looks like uh, the Navy really is going going all in on the F-16s. So that's interesting. I, I don't think I expect, would have expected that, but it looks like they've taken a closer look and uh, we're producing F-16s for some foreign customers and it sounds like they're jumping in and uh, going to be part of that. So yeah, that's-
0: Adversarial, I- right? That's the adversary aircraft for the Navy. They're using the F-16s. I don't know.
1: I, I, was it just adversarial? I actually, it's actually. Well, they, they're, like,
0: they're not going to fly an F sixteen off of a carrier, is my guess, because the F sixteen is not built for that.
1: <laughs> no, not off the carrier, but maybe as like supplemental, since they they do have they do have some other forces. But I, I actually thought that was interesting. That yeah, they were they were going after buying F sixteens. I didn't really expect the, the Navy to do that. Yeah, I think you hit. I think you hit most of the most of the big ones. Yeah, F 15s are definitely F fifteen exs Definitely winning on the on the Air Force front. Definitely a push towards that based on the whole divestment strategy. F-35s, the Air Force is definitely going to probably try to buy less if Congress will let them. So I think they're trying to back off that production quantity a little bit.
0: Yeah, we'll and see because the Air Force requested 48 last year, got 60 instead. And now they're going to say, let's go back to 48 and see what they got. We'll, we'll see what they get out of that.
1: They're definitely going to get plussed up Again, there's no doubt they're not going to win all of those legacy divestment battles, but I think they're hoping to win a few. And even if they can back off a little bit on the F 35 production, I think that buys them a lot, especially with as you mentioned about C2D2 getting, getting more money. That's that development is going to continue and it's going to require upgrades to aircraft. Yeah. So hopefully I think some of, that'll be interesting to watch, see how Congress plays that out for this budget cycle. The E8 aircraft, some of these divestments. The question there will be is, what is the confidence level in ABMS or JAB more broadly to allow the divestment of some of these E-8s? Or will they say, no, until until ABMS does XX, we're not going to feel confident enough. So we've heard that before. We'll see if we get that again. Yeah, the divestment of the some of the Navy littoral combat ships, that's going to be pretty controversial. So we'll see. See how that goes. (laughs) You're you're jumping ahead of me here. Oh, sorry.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But let's circle back for a little for a couple other things. In Army helicopters, the Apache, the Chinook, and the Blackhawk are all getting decreased. The Apache's down from 52 last year to 30 in terms of procurement. Chinook is down 12 to 6. And the Blackhawk is down 66 from 66 to 48. And the Army has been pushing a little bit more money towards the future vertical lift, which actually had a small gain relative to last year from 1 billion to 1.4 billion. So they might be, the army of course has been uh, leading the way in terms of making those trade-offs through the night court the past few years. So they've already been slimming down, but in terms of bombers and long range strike, you got the B-21 Raider, not much of an increase just a little bit, but it also has the first procurement dollars for that program. The B-21 Raider has a hundred million, 108 million in advanced procurement. The light attack aircraft and trainers and light attack, that's got a little boost right from SOCOM, which wants to buy six. So it's got 170 million up from 21 million last year. They requested a hundred million last year, but they only got 21 million for one aircraft. In ISR, of course, we have uh, advanced battle management system, which is interesting that it might be under ISR. And by the way, I'm actually looking at a data set that was sent to me from Michael Tint and Aviation Week. So props to them for giving me a little bit of a nice grouping of the program elements under these programs. But what was interesting here that they've showed me is that advanced battle management system, they requested 300 last year, they only got 158. That was a big chop down. And showing that Congress was not very, Congress did not have a lot of confidence in that program at the time. But the Air Force has requested 203 million for ABMS, and then another 82 million for architecture initiatives. And the difference between that, of course, is that they've been transitioning ABMS over to the Rapid Capabilities Office. And so architecture initiatives is really, as you were just telling me, the portfolio manager is going to be, that's his slice of the pie, essentially. So those two program elements uh, used to be one last year, but they're separate now that they're going to two different
1: organizations.
0: What'd you, what were you thinking about with the ABMS? Were you surprised or not? It's, it's about the same amount that they requested last year. I guess we'll see if they're actually going to get it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. There, some of the stuff was underfunded. So I'm maybe a little bit surprised they didn't ask for more, but they may have done that somewhat intentionally because they're still building confidence and showing, trying to convey to the Hill what's, what specifically is going to happen. So I think you'll see a lot of focus on getting those pods on the tankers that will enable that fifth gen kind of communication between the 22s and 35s, and then show some of these steps. And then in the background, they're building out the infrastructure and stuff. So I think there's a little bit more focus on getting that backbone in place, doing some of these more vi- visible, easy, easy kills. Dr. Roper always said the KC-46 pods were the most, the easy target to go after. Um, first, build some confidence. And I definitely see that line getting bigger in the out years, especially as the services all coalesce on, on some things. And, and as they they start, you know, building out their, the different applications and some of the different new sensors and stuff that, that maybe will come into play. So
0: yeah, the big news are... About a week or two ago, they were actually talking about we need to get ABMS to start delivering from the Air Force, and they, yeah, they said that the new pod-based communication systems for the KC-46 was like the the thing that they were focusing on. But they also said that they wanted to move away from the capable. They're going to in their capability releases, it's not going to be mapping specifically to specific products like Cloud One or Gateway One. So I think they're going to look at it in a different. Slightly different capabilities-based uh, way, but we'll see what comes out of there. Some more things going on. Maritime patrol aircraft, the P-8A Poseidon, got zeroed out. <laughs> they requested zero procurements last year, got nine instead. Uh, and now they're requesting another zero. We'll see if what comes out of that. We also have the CH-53 King Stallion. It's actually going strong. They got nine last year. They're looking for nine again, $1.8 The tilt rotors, the V-2 Osprey was they requested nine last year, got 15, and they're only requesting eight this year for 1.3 billion. So we'll see if they get what they want there as well. Future vertical lift, as I said, from up from 1 billion to 1.4 billion. And the program actually got plussed up last year, so we'll see if Congress is still favorable to them. Countermeasure or counter unmanned aircraft system, CUAS. Uh, that's getting a big bump up actually. It was only 2.5 million last year, and they're getting a whole 118 million this year. So that might, we'll see how that's being managed. It was, it's still an inter service program. You still have Navy and Army funding for this, but a lot of the effort was consolidated under Army leadership. And we'll see how that program matures itself. The Ford class carrier also staying steady with 2.5 billion. No procurements in this year or additions to uh, the procurement lines. The FFGX, the frigate, of course, going strong still. Another 1.2 billion for one more procurement. The LCS, that one is actually we got 415 million there for the LCS, and we'll see how many hulls they're looking to buy. Looks like their procurement, they're they are not procuring any. They're just finishing up the procurements from the end. So I think they're actually wrapping up that program here. And as we're going to talk about pretty soon, they're actually trying to retire for the hulls early. Virginia class submarine staying strong, buying two more for about $7 billion. That's pretty much the same from last year. But we have a new SSNX, which we'll also talk about, which has been bumped up from roughly a million dollars to $29 million. And we also have Unmanned surface vehicles, USVs, that was one of the big ones as well. ABMS was disappointing in terms of they requested 300, got 158. USVs even got a bigger knock on the nose last year. They requested 464 million, only got 147 million for that program. And they also broke it out between large and and small USVs. But this year, they're requesting 375 million, not quite as much as they requested last year. But Congress has been seem to have been on a a little bit of a bent in terms of assuring more bench testing, land testing, and um, subsystem testing ahead of integration for a lead ship. So we'll see what that kind of does to the timelines and their ability to get funds to, to do the experimentation that they need and whether they will get to the maturity or whether it'll be another one of these lead ship problems that has been a growing concern in Congress. Abrams has been reduced Fairly severely, from 100 to 70, but they're still turning out at nearly a billion dollars a year. Let's see what else we got here. Next generation combat vehicle down to 337 million from 560 million last year. So that's a uh, that's an, a number of programs that we'll go through here. A couple winners and losers. The big winners and the big losers. GBSD is actually a big winner. They increased quite a bit. GBSD now is grown by 1.1 million in this request relative to the enactment from last year. So they're looking at 2.5 billion for GBSD. Air dominance, NGAD, again, is a big winner. B-52H Stratofortress, they're re-winging that. That's also got a a pretty big bump up for the Air Force. But the losers for the Air Force are the C-130 Hercules that went down from 8 to 1. KC-46 Pegasus is also a loser. In the Army, one of the big winners besides FVL, the future vertical lift, is the precision strike missile and mobile protected firepower. Some of the losers are actually, of course, the apache we mentioned and the Abrams and the Attackums, the Army Tactical Missile System. In defense-wide, there's actually uh, a new account called Defense of Guam that's getting $118 million, which is pretty interesting. Some of the losers for defense-wide have been ground-based mid-course defense, which has been going through a lot of problems for a while with Boeing, but, and also THAAD. Uh, so the number of THAAD missiles has actually got cut from 39 to 18. And then the Navy Next Generation Enterprise Services has got a real big bump up from 245 million to 1 billion. And I think that's the one is, that might be the follow-on to the Next Generation, the NGEN Enterprise Network. And they're starting to experiment in the Navy there with other transactions. And they seem to have been doing pretty well. So maybe that's a vote of confidence. Whereas one of the losers here, of course, as we mentioned, the F-18 Hornet is getting zeroed out in terms of procurement quantities, the PA-8, Poseidon, DG-51, just getting one of those instead of two from last year. And roughly, it seems that the prices were 2 billion a boat when you bought two, and now it's about 2.4 billion. I said boat, but of course, ship. I'm sure Jamie, (laughs) people would want to smack me over the head for that. But and there you go. So there's some of the winners, some of the losers. And you actually, Matt, have put out something interesting on LinkedIn in terms of retirements that they were showing uh, for the Air Force. So we can go through some of those. They're trying to retire 42 A-10 Thunderbolts at a savings of $343 million. So they're going to maintain a fleet of 218. And I think that's going to try to get them to whatever that statutory number is that they have to stay at. But they're also reducing 48 F-15 CDs, 47 F-16 CDs, 18 KC-135s, 14 KC-10s, 8 C-130s, 4 J-Stars, the E-8 J-Stars, and 20 RQ-4 Block 30 Global Hawks. So quite a bit of divestments from the Air Force and potentially movement to new programs. So what's your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, you went through a lot, so I won't, uh, I won't remember <laughs> it all. But I think in general, it's not too surprising when you look at, we're trying to take more of a, the national defense strategy will be updated. We're still operating off the 2018 one. So when you look at the great power competition, which the, De- the depth sector, I don't think likes that term. So we'll have to figure out what the new term is. But the, the competition with China, the, there's definitely a divestment from things that are less survivable Harder to maintain, not modular, not easily you know, able to be upgraded and evolve with the threats. You see, even with the P8s, they may not have asked for more, but there's also, a, I think, a, a real hard bent towards looking at how to repurpose platforms for certain engagements. I saw uh, one article on the P8 that they're doing some upgrades to, to really upgrade its like, sub-hunting skills, even though it might not be survivable in certain regimes that's definitely a capability you would want in some of these naval battles you can imagine in the future. Yeah, and I think the F-3, think everybody is retracting a little bit from that. The Marines have already said in their new strategy, they probably want less of them. The Navy's always been a little bit on the fence about it. And I think they're probably hedging a little bit there too. And, and there's a lot of, I think the one thing we didn't talk too much about, but there's a lot of look to the future and GAD for, for the Air Force, which we still have a lot to learn with exactly what that will be. But the, and then there's a, a multi-role fighter that will come out that will, that the Air Force will probably kick off at some point. I think the Navy also had a vision for for a new kind of replacement for the F-18, F-8X, I think they're calling it. But I think they're also the, calling it NGAD, aren't they? Like Well, they are, I've heard they're talking to NGAD. I don't know if they've officially said that will be whatever that Air Force will come up with. I'm sure they're going to leverage some of that technology. But yeah, no, you could be right that that maybe I haven't. I don't know if I've seen it officially that they've- adopted- Yeah, they, at
0: least Aviation Week here, they have uh, next generation fighter management from the Navy. They they did request 7 million last year, got zero. No, the FY20 actual was 70, 7 million. They requested zero and they got zero last year and they're requesting zero this year. So I'm sure the money is there somewhere. I just don't know where that program element is that's funding it.
1: Yeah, you might be right. Actually, there, I've seen an article here. They're still, call, I think they're still calling it the FA sex, but they're they're actually saying yeah that the NGAD will be probably that development program that that drives that. So, yeah, I think you're I think you're right there. You know, one but, thing
0: I, th- I thought was interesting from, and I commented on this from the Air Force retirements, they were projecting five million dollars per F-15 and eight million dollars per A-10, but then for the F-16, it's just seven hundred and fifty or six hundred and fifty-seven thousand dollars per f16 which is like almost an order of magnitude 10 times less than like the other guys that were comparable so it seems like like a low number number.
1: we always know too right like those numbers can be they can be pretty not included or it's like cost avoidance or something like maybe they had some small upgrades planned that they decided to not do and that's how they got those numbers but hard to say it it, the a10 battle will be really interesting to watch i think because We've now what is different now than I think a few years ago is we're pulling out of Afghanistan, we're out of Iraq, so we're there's not a current demand for that aircraft. There's always conflicts here and there, but there's not like a ongoing operations to the extent that there was before. So it will be interesting to see if that is more palatable or if the constituency is still really strong to to keep those things alive, regardless of the cost. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch. And yeah, they have 35 battles. And yeah, the LCS, I really will, I would love to see the Navy win that battle, but it sounds like that one will probably be a tough sell as well with the Lockheed contingent on the Hill, I'm sure pushing to influence that yeah, no doubt. So let's get into that kind of. Navy tries to cut
0: four littoral combat ships to save $186 million in the FY22 budget from USNI News. The second independence class, USS Coronado, and three freedom class variants are being retired. Gilday said it would cost approximately $2.5 to upgrade the first four holes to prepare them for combat, <laughs> which is... That's a lot of money to upgrade them for combat when they're supposed to be combat effective off the line. But every LCS now is getting a naval strike missile. And the naval strike missile, that's the capability we're really excited about. That's Gilday right there. And by the way, from the budget documents, it looks like a naval strike missile. They're increasing that by from 15 to 34. And the unit price seems to be about $1.75 for a naval strike missile. But yeah, there we go with the LCS there. The the Navy's also doing their rounds of divestments as well in order to make way for modernization.
1: Yeah, I think part of it, anytime you want to buy less of something or you want to divest of something, you really do have to make a strong business case, just given what we know about how things work with the budgeting process. And so hopefully the Navy is making their case. Uh, One of the things in this article that kind of did make me cringe a little bit, and this kind of goes back to how the Air Force rolled out the A-10 retirements, which was did not go well, was that they appeared to have different reasonings between what the Navy was saying, Navy leadership and OSD leadership. So hopefully they can clarify all that with the staffers as they dig deeper into this and really make the case for, okay, if we don't buy these LCSs, we don't buy more and we divest of these, we can still achieve the same level of of operations and stuff like that and get the mission done. So, so yeah, I'm hoping that they can they be, be successful in this one, but I guess we'll see.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I think we we're talking about this recently that in their just December, 2020 shipbuilding plan, they said they were going to keep them all right. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. there's going to be like 26 of them that they would carry out through like past almost to 2020 or 2040. And already we're already getting this change. in I think everyone knew it was coming. It was just like, it wasn't official. It wasn't policy. So we have to say it is this way, but I wonder how that's going to affect the path to 355 ships or battle force 2045, whatever it is that they're going for. We'll see about it. But the next one we got here from the Navy, let's stick with them. Navy wants 110 million in FY22 R and D funds to develop next generation destroyer and submarine from USNI news. The fiscal 2022 submission asks for approximately $29.8 29.8 billion to develop the SSN X, which is the next-generation submarine, and about 79.7 million for concept development of the DDG X, the next-generation destroyer. Unlike the Virginia-class submarine, which was designed for multi-mission dominance in the littoral, SSN X will be designed for greater transit speed under increased stealth conditions in all ocean environments and carry a larger inventory of weapons and diverse payloads. DDGX will integrate non-developmental systems into a new hull design. So it looks like they're going to be maybe per- perhaps more conservative with the DDG-X going forward, but Darley Burks are getting long in the tooth. So they're going to need a, kind of a new hull form there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I wasn't clear on, the SSN-X would be the, that would be the new nuclear one. It's weird that with the Virginia class underway that they're already talking about developing a new one. It does seem a little bit early in that, but I, I think it's
0: 10 years out.
1: Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense given that the threats will be there, but given how long it takes to design some of these large ships and, and get the whole production underway and all that stuff and the materials it is, uh, yeah, it's a little bit early, but, but I guess the concept development, maybe some prototyping, hopefully that one, hopefully that will lead that early. I think there's another article that you put in here where they talk about standing up the program office quite a bit earlier, And really working through some of that concept development, doing AOAs based on maybe a better tech scout of all of the different technologies that, you know, could be available. But I hope they choose to do do things in a little bit more proliferated way. I still think with some of these submarines that they're still being built to be huge. And you just have to wonder about the bigger that we, the larger that we build some of these things, the easier it is for, for detection as different satellites you know come online that can maybe detect things better or better sensors and things like that maybe even quantum sensors <laughs> it doesn't make sense to continue to build these large ships so yeah I, I hope that that money going into SSnX is it can be used for really maybe reimagining how some of these capabilities can be provided than, than, than they are today but overall it makes sense the subs are going to play a huge role in the foreseeable future that's going to be one of our biggest deterrence, especially with the attack subs and the naval threat that we can see China churning out ships like crazy. So those are gonna be pretty important. So this this all kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, they're planning on buying two, maybe three, sometimes Virginia class submarines, basically every year into the future. And then the first, it looks like the lead ship will start getting funding 2034 ish. (laughs) Well, that's a long way off. And then let's look at the DDGX that's about the same time that they're they're gonna start coming online in the early to mid 2030s this is really long lead out there hopefully they don't work in too many requirements and you know <laughs> with that thing but
1: yeah they should keep the re- they should keep it shorter they only give two years for the AOA and and milestone a so that there's no requirement no time for requirements creep that's a good idea well,
0: that was what's interesting is that's what the the Navy, 2020, 30-year uh, plan was to start, but here in this defense news article, U.S. Navy creates DDGX X program office after years of delays for large combatant replacement. They say that the first DDG X ship isn't; they're not looking to buy it until fiscal year 2028. So maybe it's not going to get delivered until 2030 X, <laughs> or there might be a change in that plan or whatever. But yeah, so they set up at the DDG X program office and. It looks like they're going to want to carry hypersonic missiles, other long-range weapons. And even they wanted to host directed energy weapons and electromagnetic warfare tools that consume a large amount of power. They have the, that's been one of the issues when you have Aegis. It's been it, that takes a ton of power. And how do you fit all that power onto the old Burks? That was an issue with the load balancing. And that's why they went to flight three, it seems like.
1: Well, if they put lasers on there like we saw in... Some of the previous articles about abandoning the real gun in favor of the lasers. They'll probably need some of that power. So,
0: yeah, we'll see. I'm hopeful, but maybe by 2030, we'll have it. Maybe it's one of those things. It's like it's always five years away or whatever, you know, and it never actually closes. But it, I guess it's always impossible to tell from it's always whenever you look at the past, you're like, obviously, but then the certain's always the future is always uncertain <laughs> for these things when you're looking to the future. And plus, I'm just not a domain expert in lasers. I don't know enough quantum physics for that. The U.S. Navy destroyer uses TALUS radar for SM-3 launch on remote tests from naval technology. The SMART-LMN long-range surveillance radar successfully tracked the ballistic missile for more than five minutes as it reached speeds of three kilometers per second at an altitude of more than 300 kilometers. So the SM-3, that's the, the interceptor. So that's interesting. not really sure quite <laughs> <point. laughs> what to make about that.
1: This one is interesting too, because for one of the other things you noted in the, the budget wrap up was that, and the GMD got a little bit less money, which maybe when you start to look at the emergence of hypersonics, maybe this starts to make, make sense and it becomes more important to track, be able to track missiles within within the atmosphere because the hypersonics Aren't going to be as ballistic like an ICBM. This kind of radar, it's good to see for one that the uh, we're getting our allies involved and we're starting to look at technology that is not necessarily all domestic based. So encouraged by that, and also bringing our allies into this ballistic, uh, you know, missile defense mission more more concretely, just I think is good all around. So yeah, this is good. I'm glad to see the glad to see we're taking advantage of this.
0: Yeah, it looks like for the SM three missiles. They're looking to buy 40 of them for $394 million this year, basically the same as last year. And actually, they're at your right. There is the US Japan cooperative development on the SM3 Block Two, uh, which is approximately $300 million. But then there's also just more Block Two way development for the United States that's uh, $700 million. And Aegis Ashore, that's getting. 267 million. So yeah, there's been a slight decrease from last year in the SM3 and the Aegis BMD, but not too much. Yeah, And the Patriot is going strong as always (laughs) from 177 to 180. It's actually been getting slight bump ups here, but not like it was five to 10 years before. They're definitely buying a, a ton more than they are now.
1: Yeah, that, I, I see. I don't see that going away anytime in the future. Patriot is going to be a, probably a critical asset in like, some of those South China Sea fights. You can see those being really useful. They're mobile. You can stick them different places and they're pretty darn effective. So yeah, that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah. And that also looks like Sibir's next generation overhead, persistent infrared, OPIR, next gen OPIR, um, still going strong, 2.45 billion. That looks to be the most that the program's ever had. They're reaching that. And this is going to be interesting how, how OPIR shakes out in terms of middle tier, because that was one of the first, and it's also a really big use of middle tier acquisition authority. So we'll see how that shakes out. And advanced EHF is actually starting to get zeroed out now. They're winding down on the procurement side there. But you had some, some things you were actually happy about in the, in the Space Force budget. So did you want to turn to some of your happy thoughts there?
1: Yeah. I do want to note the sad thoughts real fast. It's funny because on LinkedIn, everybody liked the happy ones. No one really commented <laughs> on the sad ones. Yeah. The one thing that strikes me still is that we're still really focused on, if you look purely at the procurement pieces of the space budget, we're still really focused on buying these large satellites. General Heighton used to call them big juicy targets. So I think like next gen OPIR is just It's going to be cutting edge. It's going to be, have amazing capabilities. I'm sure great for MDA mission, great for some other missions, but it's going to be this huge satellite, like a one-off. There's going to be a few of them, but they're going to be huge targets. And in the space domain where we know the enemy is going to be able to quickly identify these and try to take actions in a conflict to deny them. It just seems to me to be a lot of money spent for, for potentially not having capability when you need it. So anyway, the sad part. To me, is that we're still buying a bunch of these big satellites. Actually,
0: I wanted to jump in here real quick because last I think the last time we came on, we were talking about the dearth of alternative, alternative PNT, navigate, precision navigation, timing, and you sent me the navigation technology satellite three, NTS three, and of course I knew about this as part of the Vanguard programs from AFRL, and it's supposed. Well, here's the quote on it. They're developing advanced techniques and new technologies to detect and mitigate interference to PNT tech capabilities. NTS3 will test a new digital signal generator that can be reprogrammed on orbit, enabling it to broadcast new signals, improve performance by avoiding and defeating interference, and adding signatures to counter spoofing. So there's all sorts of new things that they're going to be trying on here to counter jamming and spoofing and all of that and other cyber problems. But then, and I also think they're also putting it higher up in orbit, but yeah, ultimately it's still a big juicy target. <laughs> and that's, that yeah. was when I was looking at it, I was just like, man, it's the same. There's still a kinetic problem here. It, it seemed, okay, that's a nice alternative technology to some degree, but I don't think it's the resilience, it's getting to the resilience that we need. And I know, of course, there's other programs and we'll see about those going forward, but my biggest I think is a, is an example of what you're talking about.
1: Oh yeah and my biggest issue with that one besides some of those things they're talking about I guarantee have many years to mature and to be ready it's I think those are some of that stuff is pretty early fa- early stage and I say that because M code really took us a while to, to to figure out to get right and to get especially to get the user equipment um, it even is it even working right yet well once the user equipment the cards there's like a the blue Basically, force like tracking thing and all that—it yeah. just seemed
0: like when did MCO come online? Because <laughs> there, there's also there's the user equipment there, there's the ground station, and there's the satellites. And I think it was the same with MuOS, where it's just we got the satellites up there, and then we had to wait several more years to get a ground station. And then like with this uh, user equipment, it's even taking longer. And I know OC OCX is still. Been some trouble. Like this kind of we put this capability up there, we can't use it.
1: OCX, OCX is probably stabilized for the most part, but the user equipment and the satellites are are being launched. So yeah, you're right. Those pieces are in place. The user equipment is very early. We're just getting those the cards that need the ASICs that need to be installed in all the different weapon systems so that you can enable M Code and Spot Beam is the other one that's supposed to come, you know, play is be able to deny an area potentially and only allow us forces access to some of the signals. So yeah, some of that stuff is still, it's going to take a long time, I think to upgrade that fleet. So that was one of my problems with the NTS three was that is if that requires brand new user equipment and you have to now come up with a whole new set of cards and do all those integration work, that's a huge cost. That one's that one. I'm not that optimistic about it, but okay. Going to the happy side, don't like the big juicy targets, but, and also don't like the request for Thousands more acquisition people. That that to me is I don't know. It doesn't send the best message that we're being streamlined and as as effective as we can. But the happy ones, are- I would disagree with you because they've actually done pretty well <laughs> constraining their headquarters. But
0: it, I I always see as we talk about owning the technical baseline and how the Air Force, the number of acquisition folks has decreased by something like fifty percent, and like the number of dollars has actually increased since the nineties. Maybe we do just need more people <laughs> on the acquisition side and maybe to get these programs working and to have the high quality competent workforce to guide these programs to success. Yeah, but I don't, th- think, it it was, really I don't sure. think it was
1: ever a numbers thing though. Like when we talk about owning the technical baseline, I don't think it was ever a numbers thing. It was like the skill sets. So maybe you need But it's to- both wish- I feel like
0: because if you don't have the number, like if you physically don't have the numbers, then you're just going to bump every, you're just going to bundle everything together into these larger contracts.
1: No, this is for civilians. And so you're always going to have, you're always going to have some country contract support, aerospace, FFRDC, MITRE as an FFRDC supports. There's a lot of space stuff there. So I don't know I, if it's for owning the technical baseline or for hiring contracting officers or cost analysts or folks that are going to get, going to actually support this new paradigm of, and this is what we're getting to with the commercial, General Thompson standing up the right. commercial services office, expanding the commercial mill stack office. If it's intended for that, but I would argue that if we are, if we are stepping over to look more at some of the commercial services, then we should be equally divesting and moving some of our resources off of these, some of these big juicy targets. So I think there, there needs to be, it needs to be looked at from a resourcing perspective in terms of what is our future priority. Some of these programs that are satellites that are up there, they have to continue to be supported and upgraded and all that, that there's no doubt about that. But I really was encouraged by the focus on, for one, Space Development Agency. They got a good plus up for getting the, the tracking layer and the uh, transport layer. So, going after basically OPIR's mission in terms of missile defense and uh, detection of infrared activities, and then the transport layer, going after the communication a bit to see how we can do MILSATCOM better because we're about to, they're funding like three different MILSATCOM programs. And I think the question I would ask if I was on the Hill with the budget folks would be, tell me the capabilities that cannot be met by this transport layer that you need these other three programs, because it seems a little like we started these things, we have to finish them, but is it really still something that can't be met by the commercial sector? So I think the jury's still out. And I think we'll learn more about that in the ensuing couple of years as a commercial office maybe starts doing more, uh, gets more resourcing and, and starts to get, be able to do more acquisition. But yeah, those, those are some of the happy ones was the SDA get more money, the commercial services office and uh, the, this shift towards towards looking at a new way of doing business with uh, the, the space warfighting architecture center. So they're looking at how things can integrate better and pull in some of the commercial capabilities. So yeah, so space is going to be fun to watch for a while. So what are all of the middle SATCOMs? There's advanced
0: EHF, which is winding down.
1: Yeah, that one's uh, that one's old. They're not launching those anymore. And you
0: have the Polar satcom, which is for polar stuff. So yeah, that one's probably need. needed.
1: That one probably they probably need,
0: but it's more of the uh, PTS, protected tactical com, ESS, yeah. the evolved, evolved. And what about what about uh, WGS? Or
1: is that just duplicative or different? Is it, are they still la- if they're launching WGS? I think they're just finishing up that program. I don't think. Yeah, they're not launching anything there. It's pretty minimal dollars. The same with advanced EHF and the procurement side. Those are uh, just, I think, just upgrading the ground systems and keeping them viable for as long as possible. But yeah. PTS has been getting
0: about $300 million a year of just R&D every year, just chilling.
1: And, and I want those programs to be successful too because they're both MTA programs. <laughs> so I really love that. I really love the work and the people in those programs are fantastic. I just, when you look at all of the commercial satellites that are being launched that can do very secure comms that you can proliferate so that you don't have these big targets anymore. It's just, I think the question needs to be asked, what can't you do? What things are so need to be so secure that you can't use highly encrypted communications on some of these uh, commercial birds. And I'm sure there are some things that absolutely do need to be, but I think that kind of needs a little bit more like light of day. But several years ago, they had, they were Congress
0: mandated and analysis for alternatives for commercial SATCOM versus build it yourself. And I don't remember exactly what came out of that study, but it doesn't seem we've seen the fruits of that like five years later.
1: Yeah, there was a good article someone wrote recently about that, about how there's been a lot of like admiring of that. Like, yes, commercial services, they're great. And I think part of it is that we're not, the DoD acquisition community is not really good at buying services yet. Like we're good at buying people services. We've been doing that for a long time, but we're not really good at buying Pro- these product services, or yeah. Or consumption based. Services. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a lot to learn on the consumption side. And I think that once we tackle that challenge with as we get better at buying cloud and, and data services, maybe we'll be able to take some of those lessons and, and apply it to the comer- to the space space commercial sector.
0: Yeah. That's why I'm stoked on. Consumption-based solutions, and would just love to see that. I think last year in the NDAA they rolled that out um, for DHS and DOD, but I haven't seen anything on it. I want to see like that, like every cloud contract should be using that. But the, I feel like one of the problems with some of this consumption-based stuff is that. With labor, it's just, okay, what's the labor rate? And I'm going to control you based on the labor rate. And that sometimes has pretty perverse effects. And we saw that with GSA, where they're just like arbitrarily slashing certain labor rates by 20, 30, 40% in some cases. When you're talking about cloud and maybe some of these other things like as a service, those, those are products. And unless there's like a perfect commercial analogy with like transparent pricing, the government is just going to come at them and be like, how do I know you're not making you know, too much profit? Whatever too much profit means. And then what happens if the government provides some funding upfront, right? In, or invests in some of the technology. And then they try to come around and boomerang it as just as a service through O&M funds. And what's the pricing on that? And who gets insight into it? And how do you make sure they're not making too much profit? I don't know. That's It just seems like, we're just running back into the government's pricing problems, and consumption-based solutions theoretically works great, but it doesn't get past some of these weird bureaucratic mindsets.
1: Yeah, two two quick things on that. I, there there was a pilot consumption-based pilot that was stood up, and and I know OSD is working to to finalize those. So I think there will be more more on that. And then the other thing is, I think you're, aren't you guys actually sponsoring Ryan Connell yes. from DCMA or DC, yeah, DCMA? So I think there is a lot more uh, thinking. We, we really have happy. an event,
0: by the way, on June 10th, <laughs> which is pricing AI and ML products. So we got two CEOs from AI companies and then Ryan Connell is from DCMA commercial pricing. And he's one of, one of the gurus in the pricing world in DoD. He, he's always very insightful.
1: Yeah. So I think we just need more people like Ryan to, to help us sort through that and take lessons learned. We're going to we're gonna learn a lot with that. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to pay more than we should. And it's just going to be a learning process that I think we will probably all have to accept. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more literature on how to do that because I think you're right. It's, it's a tough one.
0: The so next one we got here, army modernization budget drops 4.2 billion budget drops 3.6 billion overall from breaking defense. So that just goes to show you Army modernization really got the chop there. And I guess that's really relative to the Army or the Air Force and the Navy. If we're looking at a Pacific fight with uh, a peer competitor over there, the Army might be getting less of the mission and that's being reflected in this budget. But actually, this is what we're talking about with the night court from before. The Army's actually been slashing its budget and like working really hard to make those trade-offs for a few years now. So I'm just going to give you the quote here, quote, with the Army widely expected to be the big bill payer for a large boost in Navy shipbuilding, in the first round of the night court cut, cuts, we've seen that the Army moved $22.4 billion over the five-year budget plan, culminating in 93 programs getting reduced in terms of their funding. In the second round, it moved $13.5 billion over the FIDUP, eliminating 41 programs and reducing 39. And in this third round, which is this year, it moved nine point one billion over the fit up, eliminating just seven programs and reducing thirty-seven. So, what they're saying here is they're hitting diminishing returns in terms of how much uh, trade-offs that the army can do. And again, we've been seeing that the navy and the air force seem to have been catching on to that style last year to some degree, and definitely this year.
1: Yeah, I think the army definitely with it's uh, there definitely is a role for them in the Pacific fight, but it's clear that they're they're not as a dominant of the service in that particular domain. I think we have to not forget about Russia. And if something happens on that front, the army will be the primary service yeah. probably fighting that battle. So I'm hoping hopefully they the army feels like they are not being diminished to the point where they still can't support some of those missions there. But I, I like I do like the fact that they're turning their direction to less of the super heavy equipment, more to these optionally manned fighting vehicle, to remote combat vehicles, to to some of these hypersonic long range fires and things like that. I think that's where the money is going to be for the army from my limited knowledge as an air force guy. But when you look at, when you look at like probably some of the key roles that they would play in, in both the Russia and Pacific fights, like those seem to be those seem to be really good investments for, for the things they need a little bit surprised about buying fewer helicopters. It seems like they always need more helicopters. So I wonder how much that decision hurt making that one, but yeah.
0: Yeah. They, that's a hard one to cut out, but actually the air force seems to however much, uh, helicopters it had been by basically zeroed them out <laughs> for the next year. But yeah, the the army, they definitely still are going to have to worry about Russia and they got, a surprise from them the past couple of years. So moving on to our next one, Oshkosh wins 942 million striker upgun contract, unseating GDLS from breaking defense. Quote, General Dynamics land system builds the striker vehicle and won the initial contract to urgently install a 30 millimeter gun turret on the 83 vehicles for the Europe-based 2nd Cavalry Regiment, which was badly undergun compared to Russian vehicles. So there's learning some lessons from some engagements, and the army has been moving fast with the M Shore ad, but then also with upgunning the the striker. It's interesting how all in on the striker the army is. Mm-hmm. But I thought what was more interesting was that they actually recompeted this program. It seemed like they had six competitors, and then two of them dropped out, and then they actually awarded it to Oshkosh, which is interesting because you would think that striker has all the incumbency advantages. And this might be one of those kinds of competition for the sake of competition rather than for actually getting savings and all of that. But we'll see. Maybe Oshkosh, they do have the capabilities to, to do it and the, the army will be able to make some money out of it or, or claw some money back or get better performance, whatever it is they're hoping to get out of Oshkosh relative to GDLS.
1: I think one thing too, the Oshkosh, from if I recall from before, they were always willing to... They knew that they were going to have a tough competition with General Dynamics, and they seemed willing to put some of their own money forward. I don't know if this is the case here, but one has to wonder if the decision didn't become so logical because maybe Oshkosh was willing to do a little bit more their own internal R&D, whereas General Dynamics, a more traditional defense prime, was waiting for the government to hand over all the money. So yeah, interesting to see more about what made Oshkosh so compelling. Because you're right, pretty rare to see. I'm pretty rare to see an OEM lose out on upgrades to their own vehicle, but Hey, that's the future, right? If we actually embrace MOSA is to be able to compete things like this, because it's not so, it's not so federated that you can't or not so like highly tightly integrated that you can't separate pieces out.
0: Yeah. It seems like the striker might be like doing an upgun on the striker, but you might have more modular open systems there. And it makes a little bit more sense, but the army's again, trying to, Recompete the JLTV, right? It's just like throwing that whole program, like the base platform up in the air. That's, I, and maybe that's where I was coming from, but that, that seems like a whole different kind of beast that it's hard to switch up your platform developer, even though Oshkosh, because they have so much of a kind of commercial line with all of their fire trucks and all that other stuff, maybe they are really flexible and just they're doing things better. I, I don't know. Didn't we, didn't we have an
1: article before about that, about how they, Reverse engineered it or whatever.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, I think that was uh, General Motors. Oh, it was General Motors. Yeah, yeah, with so, their
1: their new defense system, they got
0: they were looking at the JLTV, and yeah, they got one from Oshkosh. Uh, hey, they if they can reverse it engineer
1: it, I'm sure somebody else could build it. I'm sure Oshkosh could build it. <laughs> Oshkosh is the one that has got the JLTV, right? Or oh, um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm sure they I'm sure they could find another competitor. Yeah, you're right. That's Oshkosh had that one. But uh, yeah, so maybe General Motors and uh, but I maybe- wonder how much
0: that that translates. Is cloud different? cloud is once I choose my cloud provider it has to move out of that environment
1: yeah my understanding though is that it's supposed to be configured in a way I think you're right especially if you use if you use the the different tools that are provided by AWS or Azure my understanding is there's a bunch of refactoring that you sometimes have to do but in terms of data being stored there if you're not using the proprietary tools my understanding is that is meant to be fairly like you should be able to migrate. But yeah, I'm sure it's never as easy as you want it to be. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's one of the things at George Mason, we're working on our acquisition playbook. And it's yeah. just at the base where do you want competition? Where do you not? And is competition pretty limited for these kind of infrastructure things? And is it pretty regular for like the software data apps type layers? Or can I actually get competition throughout? That would be the best of all worlds. Just Thinking realistically, it seems like there's that kind of continuum and the base layer seems like,
1: yeah, recompeting that every couple of years is probably a bit too much, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think the contract, if I recall for Jedi, was going to be 10 years. And I always thought that made sense for that same reason is once you once you get that foundation established and you get everybody using the service and people start to integrate it with their their different apps and their different systems. Yeah. All of a sudden, like switching it overnight, we probably need more time to think through that and plan the transition. So 10 years always felt right to me for Jedi, even though that whole thing went awry, but for, yeah, when you get into the data stuff and especially when you like, you're pulling in different algorithms, AI and L algorithms and different things that might come from different vendors. It does seem to be, there's a level of complexity there, which I think goes back to what we've been talking about with owning the technical baseline is you just need to have government people who understand how to manage it and how to keep how to how to s- segregate the hardware from the software, in a way, or how to segregate the data el- data layers from the you know application layers, and how to smartly manage all that. So it just seems to me like if you had the talent, Amazon can do it. All these companies can do it. We could probably do it too if we just build up our talent base. So.
0: I saw an interesting. And I had this in last week's acquisition headlines. The cost of cloud, a trillion dollar paradox from A16Z. They were talking about Dropbox actually moved away from cloud services and put it back on premises. And they actually had a ton of savings. And maybe that's just because Dropbox, by the nature of what they're doing, and they're very like cloud or storage is their thing. So maybe it makes sense for them to bring it back on prem. But I also kind of wonder what the trends are there. And it is an interesting insight that Dropbox was making a lot of, right. It was actually saving a ton of mo- money, moving away from cloud and potentially it gives them a competitive advantage from what they're doing. But I think
1: for the DOD, the DOD shouldn't be building out its own cloud. That would be, that'd be too much. I think. Well, <laughs> I, I've heard that too, as a fallacy from people who are more experts in this stuff than me is that there's always been a fallacy that amongst government agencies that moving to the cloud, like magically brings this harvest of savings. Because now you don't, not because you don't have to maintain servers yourself, the cost is somehow going to be significantly less. And, and it's not always the case because it really depends on how you use that, what the rates are that you negotiate and are you expending or are you using the services at the rate you expect? Because one of the challenges that, that I've heard more than a few people mention is that you really have to monitor usage because you think at the beginning of a year, you need an XX. And then all of a sudden you're like burning way more because you didn't build efficiencies and like data redundancy or efficiencies and how you, you know, communicate with the server, with the, with the cloud servers or something where, you know, some of those things need to be designed in, but you also need to monitor it really closely because it can easily get away from you. Yeah. I think that's, that's another one of those things where we just need to get, it, make, it probably makes sense in some cases to stay on prem And it probably makes a lot of sense when we're sharing data and we're trying to keep things more seamless with like JADC2, where you just need to be on the cloud to be effective. So I I think we'll probably be in a hybrid model for a long time.
0: Yeah, I wanted to get to this interesting tidbit here, and we'll see what it actually means. Mach 30 wind tunnel to put China decades ahead in the hypersonic race from the South China Morning Post. So that's where the the source is. But quote, (laughs) a Chinese physicist has said that a new wind tunnel in Beijing soon to be unveiled will put China decades ahead of the rest of the world in hypersonic technology. There wasn't a lot of information here in terms of the wind tunnel, but this has just been one of my sticking points. The fact that the program-oriented, the output-oriented budget, we just assume that these kinds of enabling inputs take care of themselves somehow, somewhere through that production chain, or we just give them a whole bunch of tooling to go figure it out like during the program. But it's just we need to invest in these types of infrastructure, enterprise tools, enterprise test things like the wind tunnels, and it's just a damn shame that we didn't invest
1: in them back in the '90s when the Air Force Sciences Board was saying we need to invest in these things. Oh yeah, I had a friend who did a paper on this uh, back in um, 2018, 2017, 2018, and yeah, it was all about that. Is like we we knew we were going to have to come back to hypersonics. Like we started them in the early knots and then we abandoned it and we brought it back in 2017 or whatever. We started full force with all these new programs, but we never, yeah, we never built out our infrastructure. And so my friend's paper was all about that, about just how far behind we were and how complex it is to build some of these these testing facilities. So I, I don't know if I quite buy the full extent of this. There might be a little bit of PR there, but Mach 30. Oh, That's a really high number. That's a really high number. Like their best one right now is like a fifth of that. So yeah, it does seem like quite the jump. But the fact that they're striving for that just shows you the ambition, the level of ambition, though, for for their hypersonic program. Yeah, we need a lot more infrastructure here if, if we're gonna if we're gonna rely on hypersonics for the foreseeable future.
0: And I always wonder, like, government shared services has a really bad name. To what degree should government either fund a company? That's gonna go create one of these shared services and multiple companies can use the wind tunnel services or whatever that kind of infrastructure is or testing equipment is, because it's too expensive, right? If you buy it with a program, then Lockheed Martin gets this sweet ass wind tunnels. That's the wrong place. But should government people be running it as a shared service and divvying that out? Is that better? I don't really know. But I'm going to move on here to this other interesting one. Stabilized detonation could speed aircraft to Mach 17 from auto evolution. Two types of reactions that create combustion waves are known to exist. Deflagration and detonation. A deflagration produces subsonic shock waves and it is in an inefficient process. So it's a no-go for the purposes of the study. On the other hand, detonation shocks are ultra high-speed supersonic reaction waves that are highly energetic and can produce thrust. More thrust than any other form of propulsion currently in use, and this came from a uh, UCF, a University of Central Florida study. And I read this thing, and I had no idea what the hell it meant, but it was freaking interesting. <laughs> You're on mute, by the
1: way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. This is this is pretty interesting. I definitely was not tracking that. This is something that we hadn't been trying before. That's kind of what got my curiosity going. Is ha- had we tried this and it just wasn't working. It the way this article was written, it made it seem as if we really hadn't thought of it before. But I have to imagine we've like tried some of it, and because of the fact it's, it probably is a lot more disruptive, or if it's highly energetic, it as has the potential to kind of explode. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see, I guess, if they can control this. It sounds a little bit. It's almost like to me, like it's nuclear fusion in a way. It's, there's so many different variables that have to be like perfect for it to, for it to work. But if you get it, if you finally figure it out, it's like nirvana. Yeah, oh, it would be interesting to see if they can do this. It would definitely change the game if you could do this and have it in an engine that was like reasonably sized. You could. It would definitely change the game in hypersonics because I think right now we're looking, you know, at Mach five, Mach seven, or whatever. But to make this jump to Mach 17, that'd be pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, it. There just seems to be a ton of unanswered questions in terms of. <laughs> I just I couldn't physically think of how that was working in my mind. But then it's just man, the stresses that any material will be under Mach 17. Could you actually get it lower using? Does it have to go Mach 17? <laughs> I don't necessarily want it to go Mach 17. Maybe right? Yeah. Biden curtail. Biden curtails U.S. investment in Avic other aerospace players from Flight Global. Joe Biden has issued an executive order that bars U.S. securities investment in 57 Chinese companies with defense ties with airframer AVIC, AVIC, prominently on the list. Initially, COMAC, which is developing the C919 and the CR929 airliners, was not listed, but subsequently added in January 2021. And so I guess this is long overdue. I, I was actually hearing recently that Military pensions were being invested in Chinese defense companies like this. And that just seems an absurdity to be like we're financing our own enemy to some degree. But long overdue. And I, I guess this is just the start of more of the same. I'm always a free market kind of guy, but then it's just, I, I have this kind of cognitive dissonance. I guess I love my free markets, but then there's certain issues of existential threats war that maybe sometimes industrial policy makes sense but then industrial policy is a bad
1: word in my mind as well but then how do you get around it i don't know <laughs> no i'm exactly with you like whenever i start to see like bans, uh, i was arguing with some people on, on linkedin about it it was i think we can easily overreact and like every chinese company is nefarious and civil military fusion in China is perfected and every single thing a company does, the Chinese government gets a copy of it. And I think your friend Jordan has put some of this to to bed. And there's been some other reports that show that a lot of this is aspirational with China. Yeah, they want civil military fusion, but these companies dislike the government CCP involvement almost as much as we do in in many cases. And so, yeah, they do things begrudgingly because the government forces them. It's not quite I just think we need to be careful is like some of these companies for sure if they're like hand in hand with the ccp and they're you know t- doing their bidding but there's a lot of really innovative companies in china too who are just competing on the global market you know stage and i'm with you i'm a little bit of a free market guy and i just if they're competing fairly let them play but just per- too much protectionist stuff can backfire i think yeah But it's also it's a joke to think, oh, they're competing fairly, well especially with
0: what they're like, the the state champions that and I also wonder to what degree like Jack Ma disappeared for a little while. I think it was either Tencent or ByteDance. There's another guy named last name Ma who was also disappeared, a big entrepreneur. And Jack Ma came back. But there's like this feeling that there was this big enlightening of their entrepreneurship and you had Kaifu Lee with AI superpower showing, man, they're really being innovative and more entrepreneurial by 10 times than, you know, America. And then it's just, like, does the contradictions of their system mean that the, the state eventually just has to crack down on that and like you get these kind of state-owned winners and it just goes back in on itself? Or can they have an authoritarianism and market system co-mingling and actually be successful for more than... A certain number of years. That's going to be like one of the big things that I just have no clue on, but I'll be interested. To... Yep, me too. Last one that we'll talk about here: Pentagon wants to use private rocket rockets like SpaceX's Starship to deliver cargo around the world. CNBC. The Air Force's 22 budget re- proposal requested almost 50 million for rocket cargo to continue to study the concept. Rocket cargo effectively describes the Starship rockets that SpaceX is developing as the military as the military program will look to fully reuse private rockets that can launch between
1: 30 and 100 tons anywhere in the world to resupply i i I did have two like two things came to mind real fast when i saw this one it is it is really cool and ambitious really
0: i don't know but we'll see yeah it's
1: like spacex definitely proved that you can reuse but a lot of the stuff i've seen about you can reuse the boosters, but you still have to refurbish them. There's still there's still a cost there. It's not like you it's not like the boosters are like ready to go like right after they come down. There is a little bit of cost there that I didn't quite know if it was being accounted for. But then the other one is that the vulnerability of these things, like if the if you use these big rockets to deliver your most important cargo, isn't that going to become like target number one for for enemies? Like if i knew some rockets were coming down, you the chinese or whoever can track these big rockets coming, i'd have my forces out there like shooting those things down like right away. So, i don't know, i think that's maybe one thing. And then the other one is there's been i think united came out recently and is talking about supersonic, yep, airliners and what is the potential there maybe to to have more supersonic cargo planes that you could, you know, bring into theater. Is that Maybe maybe a better option or a more sort of survivable option. I don't know, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. It's definitely pretty cool.
0: Yeah, there was a yeah there. United was talking about by the end of the decade they wanted to start using Boom their supersonic jet to commercially. But there was also I saw I forget exactly which one it was. It might have been Arian, but there was another big supersonic jet producer that just dropped out and they just gave up on it maybe they just they weren't working or there maybe boom was further ahead i'm not really sure what's going on but it seems like there's a lot of interest in supersonic flight we'll see if boom they seem to be like the leaders. we'll see if they can pull it out it seems like the sound more of the commercial stuff is their problem making sure that it's it's low sound because like you don't want
1: the sonic boom and all that that might
0: not be as big of a deal for a military
1: use case there so Yeah, especially over the ocean if you're going, yeah, like Pacific, yeah, California to Pacific, yeah. So that's what we got for this week. Matt, thanks
0: for joining and thanks for tuning in, guys. Thanks, Eric.